Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches can network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports, med, rehab, and performance. To join the forum for a listing on the directory for all events, seminars, webinars, courses, etc. Details can be found on the website clinicalathlete.com. Uh, this podcast can be found on that same website as well as YouTube and iTunes and hopefully soon to be Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, all the fancy ones. So give us a review on iTunes if the show is helpful for you. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. My clinic is named Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm also jo- joined by Michael Ray, is a doctor of chiropractic and owner of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. What's up, Mike? How's it going, Quinn? I'm good. We're also joined by Derek Miles, who's we've missed you the past couple of times. He's a doctor of PT at Stanford Children's Health. What's up, Derek? How's it going, Quinn? Going well, man. Uh, and then we have a very special guest, Dr. Mike Isretel, who's the head of science consulting at Renaissance Periodization. He's the head science consultant at Renaissance Periodization, also known as RP Strength. A lot of you guys, our five or six listeners, are going to be very familiar with RP Strength. Dr. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show, man. We appreciate it. Well, geez, thanks for having me on. A uh, huge, uh, huge respect for all you clinical athlete folks. So it's a pleasure. We appreciate that. And Mike is actually giving a webinar for us on October, uh, October 4th. It's going to be titled After Rehab, Organizing Your Comeback Weight Training and Injury, or Organizing Your Comeback Weight Training After Injury and Rehab Are Done. So we thought it would be a no-brainer to get him on the show and, and kind of just give a overview of that type of concept and you know mike and derek and or michael ray and and derek and i obviously we're on kind of the rehab realm trying to then bridge that gap a little bit into the performance realm but then you know you dr mike are kind of on that spectrum as well but then bridging people from maran and so there's kind of that blend and that's what we kind of want to talk about um i guess we can like jump into the two books that I always refer people to that can kind of be a reference point is one of which is called scientific principles of strength training. And the other is called how much should I train? And to those two books are thought to be like, Oh, they're performance related and, and, and training and that type of thing. You don't really think about injury mechanisms as a part of that. But in our realm and rehab realm, a lot of the research is starting to look at training load as our biggest bang for the buck factor that we can manipulate to reduce the risk of injury. And so the whole rehab and performance worlds are starting to be a lot more blurry and and intertwined. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of dosing your training correctly after coming back from an injury? Yeah, for sure. So I mean, let's not leave out the fact that misdosing of training oftentimes leads to injury. Um, I think that it's been actually statistically demonstrated that one of the most uh, high increase risks for uh, suffering a sport-related training injury um, can be attributed to a chronic low-volume training setting or lower volume and switching to a much higher volume rapidly. So the lack of a ramp up in sort of volume landmarks terms, it means your maximum recoverable volume, which you could normally recover from, isn't super high because you haven't been training a whole lot. 
And then you train so much all of a sudden that you exceed your maximum recoverable volume. And if you're not recovering at any level, especially at the tissue integrity level over multiple training sessions, within a few short training sessions, your normal sport-related forces can exceed the capacity of your tissues to tolerate, and all of a sudden you're hurt. So funny enough, that causes injuries to begin with, and then people repeat the, the mistake as soon as they re-enter sport participation uh, when they come back. Now, uh, sort of I mentioned that chronic low volumes of training mean your maximum recoverable volume isn't very high because that's a quality that you can train. Right? The more you train on average and intelligently reducing loads every now and again, the more your work capacity goes up. Now, after you get hurt, clearly, if it's a serious enough injury, and I guess if we speak about more serious kinds of injuries in this context, everything else is like all the same concepts but applied to a smaller extent, right? So if we just speak about the more serious kinds, it'll sort of be a cover-all. After a relatively serious sport injuries, let's see, in a, say, an ACL tear or a quadriceps tear or something, um, you know, you're not really doing a whole lot of walking, potentially any walking, and you're certainly not, let's say, running around the soccer field like you used to. You're not squatting. You're not doing all that stuff. And that probably occurs for weeks before surgery and weeks to months after. And basically, and I, you know, uh, what we're going to talk about in very, very high technical rigor uh, in the webinar itself later. But what I'll talk ch touch on a little bit today is, the, uh, you know, a lot of people can be made by their doctor. A lot of people, when they're in physical agony, won't do much. Like it's, it's, it's very rare that you have an athlete with a full quad tear and you're like, you better get off that field, son. Cause he's like in such agony. This is not going to play. Right. And a lot of times it's a problem that athletes disappear too much away from any kind of activity and interfere with the rehab process. You can make folks do rehab to some extent. The coach can say, look, you go to your sessions, but there's a real nasty problem when athletes are sort of cleared ish from rehab and they re-enter limited sport participation. By then, the psychological tendency is to be so pent up to want to participate so highly and at the same time, your maximum recoverable volume at every level of analysis, every tissue, joint structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, energy systems is so low and never mind that the tissues are themselves not fully healed. The temptation is often to train a lot Right. And, and there's also the psychology we can talk about of trying to make up lost time. Like, oh, man, when I get back on that field, I'm going to train so hard. Like, that's actually the opposite of what you want to do. Funny enough, um, I don't want to use the jail analogy, but they, they say jail is like you, you never can make up the time. It's just time that's gone. Right. You just go back to work, doing your best after a similar thing with injury. Um, so it's one of the situations where people want to return to a real high level of performance. Their, MR, their maximum recoverable volume at every level is incredibly low because they've been almost completely inactive for weeks, if not months. And that's just another recipe for almost exactly the kind of disaster that they probably got themselves into in the first place. Um, only now that disaster is magnified because their tissues are, are not are underhealed, right? They're not even fully healed yet oftentimes. A return to play clearance doesn't mean that the tendon is fully healed. It means it's healed enough that, you know, a limited engagement is going to be okay. So you're basically putting yourself into a real, real bad situation if you rush back in. So a lot of the discussion we're going to have eventually in the webinar is about how to not rush back in Derek, is and that how to intelligently egress into a back into play. Yeah. Derek, is that about what you're seeing too in the acute to chronic workload ratio literature? 
Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, if you look at most of your ACL retairs happen within, I think, 90 days of return to sport. If you look at the evidence, they did a 10-year NFL cohort study and essentially uh, on strains. And if you survive the fourth week of the preseason, your odds of suffering a strain go down dramatically. But we look at it from a training side, and it's funny almost from the coaching aspect as well, because if a player shows up out of shape, the strength coach or coach or whoever, the initial thing isn't let's ramp you back in. It's let's catch you up as fast as we can and give you this extra load along the way. So it really is just about figuring out that load management. And, you know, I think maybe our vernacular should shift from return to play to return to train. And because as soon as we give them play, all of a sudden it's like full go and we don't want full go. Like when I talk to my athletes about it, the discussion we always have is, I want gradients, not inflection points. And anytime we have that inflection point in training is where we start increasing our risk of trips back to see me. Michael Ray, what do you disagree on? Everything. I think all of this is bullshit. And uh, no, it's pretty much, I completely agree. Uh, it's it's going to be an echo chamber. I'm not going to have much to add to that. Uh, basically, like what Derek was saying, um, and we just had a review come out by Eckerd, a systematic review recently, I think it was like two weeks ago, that pretty much solidified like this is no longer emerging evidence on acute and chronic workload ratios. It is now established evidence that this is a high correlate uh, contributing to injuries. Um, so it's something we should all be monitoring on a regular basis, whether for performance or for rehab and return to return to training, as Derek said. Dr. Mike, can you differentiate? You've referenced maximum recoverable volume, and I know that ever since the scientific principles of strength training has come out, that's probably the, one of the most common, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the most common questions that you get. Well, how do I find my max recoverable volume? So common, in fact, that you wrote the book, How Much Should I Train, to answer that exact same question. Do you yep. find, are you making a differentiation in a, for an athlete who's coming back from rehab? They're, they're quote-unquote healed, they're cleared, so they're ready for, for training. Are you making a differentiation between maximum recoverable volume and minimum effective dose, or is minimum effective dose and maximum recoverable volume, in your eyes, just one and the same? It's it's their MRV is simply their MRV depending on their fitness level. Man, you know, um, usually in most cases, unless you're talking about very advanced athletes that are in very good shape, there's a huge volume distance, a difference in volume between minimum effective volume um, and the uh, maximum recoverable volume. And, um, you know, so maximum recoverable volume is, is defined by us in the um, performance community a little bit differently than, than it would be defined in a physical therapy community or, or an athletic training community. I think the maximum recoverable volume in a performance community assumes all systems and structures are working relatively well. It does not assume a, a sort of predisposition for chronic degradation of said structures. So uh, MRV is defined as recovery is defined as can your performance return back to baseline within a certain uh, time after you have exerted yourself. So usually we measure it on a weekly scale. So you do 20 sets of chest work or quad work in one week and the next week you come back and you do at least as much weight for at least as many reps and you have no performance decline, then 20 sets was not your maximum recoverable volume. Your maximum recoverable volume is higher. But if you do 25 sets and the next week everything's garbage and you can't perform well, then you know you probably exceeded your MRV. You know, of course, you'd have to try it a couple more times, so on and so forth. But basically, that's the concept. I think in a physical therapy and rehabilitation context, maximum recoverable volume is how much volume can you do without compromising 
the general vector of tissue healing that you're on. Uh, so like, you know, like your tendons are healing at a certain rate. You do a certain amount of volume. They might go like this and then they keep going. As a matter of fact, optimally, you would do things that increase the vector of healing. Um, I think a maximum recoverable volume uh, for for rehab would be, okay, your tissues are healing, and then you do so much volume that they stop healing and start degrading again. <laughs> that little inflection point right there is something you pretty much never want to pass in a rehabilitative setting, because the entire point is to get this back up to its normal high, high level. So I think that people have two maximum recoverable volumes, one for performance and one for actual sort of internal damaged tissues. And you can't really feel the damaged tissues, as you well know. You know, you can't really tell if your tendon's hanging by a thread or if it's fully integrated into the bone. It's often impossible to tell because of the low innervation, vascularization of that tissue. So what athletes do is they come back, they feel good, they train like crazy, they feel good, train like crazy, feel good, and the entire time their tendon is breaking up further and further and further because it was never fully healed to begin with. And then, like you guys said, within four weeks... 90 days or whatever, the shit pops off again, and we're like, oh, damn. And it's like, well, you know, you can't judge, you know, uh, oh, the performance metric like that. Like, if you have some kind of um, issue with an engine or issue with um, a part of a race car, like the frame, you might have sensors in the frame. Um, you're, if you're trying to see if the frame is still broken after you've supposedly mended it, you go take the car on runs. You don't take it on runs to its maximum speed and turn corners like crazy. You take it on runs that are relatively slow to see if the frame works. And if the frame isn't breaking up, you take it a little faster. And as soon as the frame starts to shake a bit, you back off, fix some more stuff, and keep going. So I think there's a huge mentality shift that has to happen with athletes where the first XYZ number of weeks to months, and it depends on the severity of the injury, after returning to, to play, and like you said, it was really stupid, that there needs to be a change in nomenclature, return to training is way better than return to play, but after the athlete is no longer in a formal rehab setting, when they come back to some kind of training, the idea needs to be, let me do everything I can to first heal, and second of all, set up some potentiating factors like an increase in muscle mass, an improvement in technique, so on and so forth, that can rocket my performance upward after I have healed, not I'm going to come back and let's just rocket my performance up because not all is well yet. So there are two maximum recoverable volumes that are pertinent in that case, and folks are going to train to this one. They're going to get real deep shit. They need to train to this one, and oftentimes that one's real close to the minimum effective volume. The good thing is, when you're really out of shape after a training injury, your minimum effective volume is really low. So you can get better doing basically nothing, which is exactly how much you need to be doing when you come back and slowly, 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 like you said, uh, no inflection points slowly ramp. And actually, the stuff I'm going to be talking about, I can give a quick preview if you guys want eventually, uh, in the webinar, is there's multiple distinct phases of the ramping in process for coming back from injury. It's not one long ramp. There's multiple uh, modalities that we're imposing because you're not ready for the regular modalities right away. There's multiple phases to that process. Yes, it is a lengthy process. The only question you have to ask yourself as an athlete is, do I want to get hurt again shortly after or at some point soon? Or do I want to, within a year, uh, pretend like this never happened and continue to have great performances for another five to ten years? It's a real simple question when you think about it, but impatience often gets the better of all of us. Well, in your webinar, you're going to go through some phases like you just mentioned, one of which is just kind of the rehab phase, you know, the initial the healing response, not doing anything to get in the way of Mother Nature. Phase two being a low-load range of motion training, range of motion can kind of be wherever you are 
you know, meet, meet you where you are as far as tolerable range of motion. And then you, we go on to phases of, of volume buildup and intensification, these types of things. Are you, what you see commonly are athletes that will go from phase one to basically to jumping right to phase three and try to build volume right away. Like after they're no longer in the debilitating pain or they can like their tissues are attached again, they try to build up too quickly and they kind of skip over that low load reintroduction phase. Oh boy. Not only have I seen that very often, I've seen folks skip the entire process altogether, still be in pain and figure like, eh, this is a manageable amount of pain for me to still hit really high intensities. I've seen folks do doubles and triples in the squat at meaningful fractions of their all-time best within weeks of being cleared for weightlifting by the rehabilitation specialist who either they made up that they were actually cleared, where that particular individual had no understanding that they were high-level powerlifters and what it is you're clearing them for. <laughs> you know, this is not like pink dumbbells type of stuff. This is 600-pound-plus squats. So I've seen folks literally not even finish. I've, now, a lot of people don't even finish the rehabilitation process because, as you guys know, there's really kind of – you can conceive of the rehab process as two parts – but I went with a transitional part. There is the rehabilitation under direct supervision of an expert, and then there's a gray area in between there where the expert shows you how to do your own rehab, and then there's a rehabilitation process that you are to execute by yourself, especially range of motion uh, improvements, so on and so forth. Now, a lot of people don't do that second part at all, <laughs> and some folks quit halfway through the first part. So it's definitely um, it's definitely really bad news. And and the folks that do get all the way through the rehab, then a lot of times what they do is they have some very very much more direct route, much quicker route than necessary to lifting their heaviest weights or returning to very very explosive, very injurious type of activities. Um, it's a, it's a really, really big problem. It is highly predictable, unfortunately. Um, and, and there's almost seems to be a competition among athletes in some sense of how fast can I come back? Like, you know, cause Instagram and videos and stuff, they'll be like squatting with their like bicep in a sling. And then next week they're pulling light deadlifts. And then the week after that, they're pulling heavy deadlifts and they're like, just three weeks post-op, brother, and I'm already doing it. Like, nobody gives a shit. I mean, maybe, I don't know who the hell gives a shit how many weeks post-op you are. The question is, is what are you going to do at Raw Nationals next year? And if you re-injure your bicep again, or in some ways even worse, just continue to have nagging pain that makes you alter your training, what are you going to do? You're not going to do shit. That is another uh, issue we run into all the time is... Um, too many people get caught up because, you know, it's almost like we're saying, look, if you come back too soon, you're going to get hurt, hurt again. A lot of times that doesn't happen. What ends up happening is they develop basically a chronic condition from an acute injury where they started way too soon. Perhaps they relied on other structures to compensate. And now all of a sudden they, you know, they pulled uh, a tendon off in one knee. And all of a sudden their other knee kind of hurts because they've been relying on it too much during squatting. And then they never really fully healed in their knee that got hurt. And then all of a sudden, they have to manage their training loads very, very poorly. They're not able to train as heavy or hard even months later as they would like and as they're cleared for because they basically de developed a chronic condition from insufficient healing. As a, you, you guys, I'm not, not going to coach you guys on this, but there's scar tissue development, all kinds of stuff that if you don't handle properly, it can just nag you for a really, really, really long time. I think a lot of people don't understand that. Like Once you're cleared for injury or, or from injury, it's not that if you can survive the ramp-up process and get back to being pretty strong that you're clear. How you do that process 
can determine if you basically never think about it again or if it always something that bothers you to some extent. I'm sure you guys have seen some of that sort of crime. Have you guys seen any of that sort of thing where it's like people just basically develop chronic issues from a too quick of a return to play? Michael Ray. Basically my day-to-day job. Yeah. <laughs> right on. <laughs> but never. it gets back, and since I've transitioned into more like the pediatric youth side, it's even weirder, funnier. I don't know the negative connotation I want to give because it, it's not, you know, a weightlifter trying to go to raw nationals. It's someone trying to finish their last little league game. And it's absolutely imperative oh, that they show up for it, even though they had a fracture six weeks ago, but you know, you can play through it at 12 and you're like, Jesus, like, are you trying to set yourself up for failure? Like, I'm pretty sure all of us have a stack of trophies sitting around our house and things we accomplished when we were younger. And I'm pretty sure my, parents have it in a trash bag somewhere in the attic but you know at the time it was the biggest thing that ever happened in my life and sometimes it's trying to show kids hey there's more to life than your little league game yeah michael that's Ray, rough yeah michael ray do you see patterns like that as well it's kind of like the athlete will come in and it's it's either all or nothing if they can't train the way they want to train they do nothing and as soon as they feel like they can they just blast themselves out of the water yeah, and it's kind of a contributory issue to chronic musculoskeletal issues. Like it's the people you see on the injured list, injured list regularly. Like they come back from one injury, they get a new injury they have to deal with, and they they rehab from that, and they get another injury, and it's just like, why is this person always on the injured list? And then you look back at things, you're like, you're just constantly rushing the process. You're not being patient with it. Um, so it's something we see all the time, unfortunately. And then, as Derek said, the frustrating part for youth athletes is we have pretty good standards in place about um, a number of hours per training per week, uh, not training more um, hours per week over your age, not specializing in sport, stuff like that. But whether it's being adhered to, it's a whole other issue. Yeah. Dr. Mike, when you mentioned things can come go from acute to chronic, you know, every, every chronic issue started somewhere. So it started as an acute issue and then these things can, can linger or become a conditioned response. Then we, as, as rehab professionals, have to kind of, pain is a real complex thing. And then some of the, the tendon literature is now kind of saying it's almost, not only is it sometimes necessary or okay in chronic conditions to kind of recondition them to some extent to feel some of their symptoms, but it may actually be necessary, but it's because we have to grade that exposure and, and actually recondition the tissues to being okay with the stressor, but it's just such a more complicated process than simply allowing the, the acute inflammatory stages to go on and then appropriately grading back into training. Can you touch on a little bit about the kind of this phase two to phase three transition, like this low load range of motion training? What exactly that means to you? And then transitioning into a, a volume buildup. Is that simply about getting back the available range of motion and then just hopefully increasing your MRV from cycle to cycle. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So can you guys hear me? Okay. My network connection says it's poor. Oh, you're good. I got you. Okay. Cool. So, you know, when, so the first phase is basically you finish the rehabilitation process as directed by your healthcare provider, you know, post rehabilitation process, if you are inactive, you're basically cleared for daily life, which is cool. You got to remember, you don't live daily life. You impose very, very 
um, you know, concentrated loads onto your body. So the next part of the process is, uh, or next several parts are basically you're, you're going to have whatever joint it is you hurt. Oftentimes there's going to be due to variety of factors, a range of motion restriction on that joint. And you can't really call your tissues healthy and recovered. And you can't even train properly unless you have reestablished a very good or even um, I, uh, original range of motion. So, for example, if you you know tear your something in your knee and they reattach it, uh, at first you won't be able to squat deep at all. So maybe you can take some time doing lots of leg extensions, maybe leg presses with very low loading, and progressively stretching the area deeper and deeper uh, as discomfort allows. Right. Um, and eventually, after weeks of this, you may be pain free through more or less a full range of motion. What that does is it opens up the doorway to you to really begin in training that is more hypertrophy oriented. Because prior to establishing a range of motion uh, that is decent, I wouldn't even say you're clear to really train to do anything other than to reestablish normal motor patterns. Like In my view, if you're not normally moving, if you're favoring one side versus another to a huge extent, if you're really range of motion reduced, you're not even in shape to train, so to speak. Like You're not really done fixing the area. Once you're, once you can basically, if you're, it's a lower body issue, once you can do a full squat convincingly with an unloaded barbell, you've convinced me that you're ready to actually train. But at that point, your connective tissues are, are due to detraining from not uh, having trained a while and also directly due to the, the damaged tissues that you're actually injured. Uh, they're not ready for heavy loading yet. So it's a really good time to take a, uh, advantage of the high repetition sort of metabolite training. And that kind of training can allow you to grow a significant amount of muscle. It can skyrocket your MRV with loads that are in the 30 rep max range, which is by any standard, very unlikely to get you hurt. So you're going through a full range of motion, isolation and compound exercises, and you're slowly working up in volumes, number of sets you do per week, very slowly, until you're doing your 30 RM weights or so for like, you know, 10 to 20 to 30 sets a week or whatever's, you know, close to your maximum recoverable volume. At that point, you've probably regained a considerable amount of musculature, if not all of it or most of it. And then you are, uh, you know, at this point, your tendons are in relatively good shape or connective tissues that you hurt are in relatively good shape. They're not yet ready for maximal loading, but they're pretty well on their way to some decent loading. And uh, you're basically now in shape in uh, the variety of other parts of your body to actually train like a normal hypertrophy trainee. So then you train in a normal hypertrophy phase rep range anywhere from, you know, gee, you know, eight to 20 reps. And I would recommend slowly dipping into that starting in the 20 ish range and slowly adding weight to the bar, taking deloads are necessary. Eventually you get to the eight ish reps range. Now, when you're doing a full range of motion with the same exercises you always did, no symptoms, uh, and you're doing heavy eights, you're ready to get into fives, threes, twos, and whatever else, and you're ready for maximum heavy lifting. Then you're totally good. 
But the big problem is a lot of folks have absolutely no patience for the honestly very pain-inducing sets of 30, <laughs> right? That shit hurts like crazy. It works really well, and it's almost guaranteed to not get you. It's really hard to get hurt with sets of 30. The forces are just not sufficiently high. Most people don't do that part. And some people, when they'll try to do higher reps, they'll realize that they're actually relatively, and here's another really big problem. So when you come back from being inactive for a while or very low activity, a lot of times, because your mononuclear domain is still intact, because your nervous system is really good at the technical qualities of your lift, you've been training for a long time, you can lift relatively heavy for low reps quite soon after your injury. Can doesn't mean it's a good idea from a re-injuring perspective. But you're not in good enough cardiovascular shape, peripheral vasculature shape, myoglobin shape, so on and so forth, fiber conversion to do high repetition sets, sets of 10, sets of 15. So people that try it are just winded, their lower back is pumped beyond all hell, and they go, you know what, fuck this, I'm just going to do sets of five or sets of three. They start doing that, and they say, I'm just going to go light. And then light feels okay, so then they just go heavy shortly thereafter, and then they re-tear their shit, um, and, 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 and voila. So when you do this process properly, there's going to be phases of it, especially at the beginning, where you're training very light, but for very high reps, the purpose at the end of each phase, you should have a great amount of confidence that you're rebuilding a lot of structures, you're getting jacked, and you're not even close to getting hurt again. I'll put it to you this way. This is an easy, this is real, I don't know if this is really good advice or not, but if you know you're doing things wrong, for sure, when you load up a weight sometime after injury that you're going to be squatting or benching or deadlifting or what have you, and you kind of do one of these facial expressions like, ooh, hopefully the sound effect carries over on the radio show. You're like, oh, here we go. Hopefully nothing snaps, right? There should not be a point like that in your rehabilitative process and your return to training process. Everything should be like sets of 30. Well, of course it's not going to get me hurt. I'm doing three sets of 30. Who gives a shit? Then weeks later, you're doing 20 sets of 30 and 25 reps. That's not going to get you hurt. It's just annoying and hard. Then when you get to sets of you know 25, 20, sets of 15, you just did like very similar stuff the weeks before. It's nothing new to you. It's just a little bit heavier. You're never like, oh, geez, I hope this is okay. By the time you get to heavy sets of eight and you're feeling good, there's nothing that's going to scare you anymore because you really are physiologically at every level ready for super heavy weights, and then you taper right into them. It's just crazy to me that people will be like, oh, you know, and they'll post this on Instagram and Facebook for sure. Be like, for a 500-pound squat since my injury three and a half weeks ago, I kind of felt a little weirdness in my knee, but nothing happened, so going to go for 550 next week. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then usually they don't post the 550, and then they post themselves at the rehab center a week later like, knee flared up again, so I'm working on getting, and then, you know, insert new modality here, like working on getting some stem cells going or some some red blood cell therapy, and then it's just the next trick to keep them from from taking the time to work back in. Man, you just described my life, like, beautifully, Mike. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, man? We're, see, we're seeing that from the other side as sports scientists. We just watch these people go, and we're like, oh, you're an idiot. You're dumb. I can, I can watch. I scroll through my Instagram, and I see, like, these lifters, people I know, uh, that I'm just like, oh, my God, here you go, doing the same. And, man, I've seen some folks, and this is super unfortunate, go through this identical process maybe three to five times for the same injury. The same injury, just back, back, multiple surgeries, um, every time committing the exact same mistake. You know, I'm waiting for them to do, like, videos of leg extensions for sets of 30 for two months straight. It just never happens. 
it's like got hurt coming back um bench 400 today felt pretty good i'm like oh my god i, I just uh, it baffles the mind um uh, those folks are a lot of them know better they just i don't know bravado or something i think the the upcoming webinar we're going to have on this is for people who they're hurt and they might just might not know what to do like i know you have to do rehab but then what you know because a lot of times you know you guys are all sort of field leaders in the return to play return to practice but not everyone has you as their physical therapist a lot of folks unfortunately as you probably well know have physical therapists that just haven't the faintest idea of training or sport they used to work with old people or car accident victims and to them it's like you ask them, you're like, okay, so like my knee's better now. They're like, mm-hmm. And you're like, can I do my sport? And they're like, yeah, you should just ease in. That's literally the extent of their advice and knowledge is, quote, ease in. I don't know about you guys, but that can mean a whole lot of things. And and, and yeah. I think that webinar is going to be like, here's what ease in actually means. Because uh, a lot of times, you know, that, that depends on temperament. If you're real aggressive, ease in means one week and then you go heavy. If you're super conservative, it can mean six months. Yeah, we're definitely trying to change that with scientific principles of sports rehab, hopefully elucidating how to dose and loading and return to play. I mean, Mike, you're coming on here talking all kinds of common sense. It's it's odd. It's but it, it really <laughs> My is. Mistake. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, from from the rehab side of things, it, it's interesting because even if you are trying to dose the person back in, you always have that like butthole pucker of when can I cut the chain? You're like, I want to let them go. I want to facilitate all this independence. But like, I guess we're so ingrained in the they're going to go do something they shouldn't be doing that sometimes it gives you this like hesitancy. So it, it's always good to have like a strength coach or someone who you really trust on the back end to be able to defer to. And that's where Quinn and Mike are in definitely unique situations and that Mike runs his own gym. Quinn works in the gym. So that like gray area gets much better, but I have parents all the time. They're like, so what gym would you recommend in town? And I'm like, I just shrug and I'm like, I wish I had something for you. Yeah, it's really rare. A lot of folks know how to train healthy people. A lot of folks know how to get injured people back to regular person healthy, not athlete healthy. Very few folks are specialized in that bridging the gap. Um, I still can't believe that people push their little league kids to play in the game after. That's crazy. Gotta get that scholarship. To where? To middle school? <laughs> right. <laughs> Mike, I have, everyone plays. <laughs> I have nine-year-olds trying to rush back to go to international tournaments. That's that's awesome. Mom and dad just just being good people at that point, I guess. Yeah. I mean, with little kids, you got a concern of like um, bone growth asymmetries and stuff, right? I mean, yeah. And well, you even start talking about like different adaptation rates between muscle bone and tendon. So it's the, the loading side of it is a whole 20 minute conversation in and of itself. And that you get the kids that are going out and participating in 20 hours of swimming a week and then start popping up with stress fractures when they do their dry land workout. And you're like, well, you haven't had an actual load go through your bone in your entire life. Right. So. And they actually like come in and, and, to their credit, sometimes they seem completely unaware, and you sit down and talk about, well, what does their training regimen look like over the past, you know, three months, six months? Like, well, they only play this one sport for 20 hours a week, year-round, for 10, 11, 12 months. They have on-season, and then do all these rec leagues, and they do the local leagues, and it's like, can you not see how this is happening? 
Um, and it's a process, and sometimes it just doesn't stick no matter how much you talk to them about well, it. I think it's one of those things where you get so close to it, you can't actually see what's going on because yeah. every parent thinks it's not going to be their kid until it's their kid. So just like, you know, in the same token, like none of these Instagram lifters, I'm sure, like it's not going to be me. It's going to be someone else until it is them. Maybe we're giving them too much credit for self-awareness. <laughs> Jeez, Mike. Maybe. Hey, Dr. Mike, it's funny that you mentioned the sets of 30. Like people will probably hear that and be like, what the fuck? You know, have never done a set of 30 in their life. Maybe, you know, over the course of the entire training week, they build up 30 reps. But if you look at some of the, the tendinopathy literature with the, what they term as heavy, slow resistance training, which is essentially just tempo work. They're doing rep maxes at, at sets of 15, but they're going at a three up, three down tempo. So, yeah. I mean, that time under tension is probably equivalent to a set of 30. Yeah. But it, and it, it sounds like the important factor there is you're working back into this volume buildup is a self limit the external intensity to some degree. Um, with that said, is this where the internal intensity markers, things like RPE or reps in reserve, are still relatively high? Or is that where you're introducing those concepts as well? Yeah, I mean, so like ideally, you would absolutely want to introduce those concepts. Um, I think the first workout back, like first formal weight training session back from rehab should basically be like a couple of, let's say, Monday and Thursday, we're training quads and we tore a quad. Tore a quad, you know, full tendon repair, successful, um, several months of rehab, successful, range of motion mostly restored. The person can walk, get up and out of a chair. What? That's good cutoff for most rehab, right? <laughs> like at a hospital, they're like, can you get up and out of a chair? Can you drive your car? Yep, fuck out of here. <laughs> hey, can you drive your car? Yes, get out of here. Like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> so, Basically, so it would have cleared then, and then the question is, okay, so what do I do, like, first week? Well, what you want to do is, for lack of a much better term, is just feel your swag just a little bit. So you're going to go, and you're going to get on the leg extension or the leg press. You're going to load a very light weight, and you might do, like, 20 repetitions in just the last couple. Or, like, ooh, okay, I feel the machine pushing back a little bit. I feel a little bit of a pump after that set. I feel like I did a little bit of work. And then you're going to shut it down after like two or three sets. You're going to go home and you're going to wait until Thursday or whenever the hell there's no delayed onset muscle soreness anymore because you'll probably get some even from that little bit. Then you're going to repeat that workout another time. I would say there's a good a good um, the policy is to straight up repeat that same workout verbatim. And then clearly, it's just not going to be that tough again. So then you spend the weekend being like, ooh, that was an easy workout. I'm really completely healed. The next week, what you might do is instead of, you know, the three sets of 20 you did, you might want to keep the same weight and do four sets of 22 to 24 reps, right? You just feel a little bit. It's a little bit of a pump, a little bit of soreness, a little bit of the weight pushing back at you. But it's your 30 rep max, so you're still nowhere near failure, right? Just a little bit getting a work in. So basically, as you guys can see, there's a pattern that develops here. After the first month, you might be doing like 
seven to 10 sets per workout twice a week and pushing close to 30 reps right on every set. So now you're pushing pretty close to failure, but it takes a whole month to get into that. Mind you, your minimum effective volume for hypertrophy is so low after that whole time off, you're going to be growing muscle like wild the entire time. As a matter of fact, there's a very good theoretical um, and, and, and an experimentally confirmed reason to think that if you go any faster, you actually create so much muscle damage that your body spends too much resource healing muscle damage. It doesn't actually hypertrophy you much. So now that you're doing sort of seven to 10 sets twice a week for that, you know, leg extension or leg press or whatever set of 30, you're doing pretty well for yourself. Now, what you want to do is slowly add weight because your, you know, 30 RM is not your 30 RM anymore. It might be your 40 RM now. Slowly add weight to keep those sets of 30 or so relatively challenging and push the volume. After a month or two of that, you'll be doing quite a bit more weight, no, nothing crazy, and maybe 20 to 30 sets per week or something like that. Still getting pumps, still getting sore. After that process is completed, your range of motion is excellent, you feel pretty good, then you can start dropping into the 20 to 10 range. And I say that on purpose, 20 to 10, because you should start in the 20-ish range, right, and drop into the 10s range. Then you can start integrating more regular exercises like squats, maybe start out with squats with a Smith machine for the added stability, eventually switch to free weight squats, although you can do free weight squats normally as part of your mobilizing work, your warm-up stuff for good technique. I wouldn't use it as the exercise to push stuff on for especially such high repetitions. Because a lot of times when you squat for such high reps, it's your lower back that gives out anyway. It's not even your glutes or your quads or anything pertinent. So eventually you weave in normal exercises again, and now you're really picking up the pace and uh, training you know, anywhere between four reps in reserve all the way to relatively close to failure. But again, that first month or two, you do not approach muscular failure. I have no idea why people are so obsessed with muscular failure as an endpoint in and of itself. Yes, it's good as a reference point because anything way short of failure is a bad idea. But I think people just, just I don't know, I think it's, again, psychological. People want to come back and know that they've really pushed it. You know, like one too many Rocky Balboa movies or some shit like that. And the first week back, they're like, I fucking hit it today, man. It was only two or three sets, but I went to failure. Why? Why? Why go to failure if you can get excellent results not going to failure? A lot of this, these principles of returning to training is just a matter of delaying stuff as long as you can and milking out the gains at every step of the process. Then by the time you get to where you're going and you're hitting doubles and triples again, not only are you way more muscular than you ever were and stronger than you ever were, but you were so healed and so technically sound, you might have even improved your technique on the lifts during that time, you're over-prepared. Wouldn't it be better to enter your pre-meet strength cycle over-prepared, over-recovered, and being like, man, I'm so fucking ready to do this shit, versus entering with that Ugh, face like, Ugh, I hope nothing breaks in half. This is the first time I'm training super heavy, and I don't know what's going on. If you milk it in and you go super slow, you're giving yourself all the advantages. And the thing is, really quick, just to, just to make sure I get this out, and this, uh, I'll get it out a ton in the webinar. When you're doing this high volume work, this high rep work, and then the sets of you know 10 to 20 reps, you're growing a huge amount of muscle. Muscle growth always and everywhere transfers into higher strength and higher power and all that stuff down the line. It's just down the line. Take this opportunity to build the muscle that you need to get even better. For example, if you tore your quad, your quads are going to be pretty small when you come back, much smaller than they used to be when you come back. 
to uh, the post-rehab training process. After six months of this ramping up, you might have the biggest quads you've ever had. After three months of getting back into strength training, you'll hit all-time PRs. So it's almost like an injury sometimes is a bit of a blessing in disguise because it can make you rework your technique with lighter weights and it can make you hypertrophy because the only thing you can do is hypertrophy because strength training is out. You know, we all know folks that do strength training are always doing doubles, triples, and singles. They never take the time to grow muscle with higher reps. This is a really good time to do that. So there's a way to see this as kind of a hard reset for your training, which can make you way better later on. Tough sell, but it really does work. But if I add 10, 10 pounds to the bar every session, then it'll go faster. Yeah, totally. And then you'll be the man and everyone will love you. Like has never happened in your childhood and, and you'll feel the warm embrace of society at large and you'll finally be a star. That's uh, all I need. <laughs> and if we're going to do it like Rocky, good, right? yeah, if we're going to do it like Rocky, then we would train our absolute hardest the week of the fight. Yeah. Oh my God. Never um, be a sports scientist and watch athletic movies because nothing makes you just don't appreciate stuff anymore. I remember people I, I saw um what's that Denzel Washington movie? Um with the uh, remember the Titans? You guys remember that movie? Yeah. yeah. I'm on a podcast. Oh. <laughs> One of my roommates answered for me. <laughs> she remembers. Everyone does. So remember the Titans. Do you guys remember that scene where they're like in the middle of the night running three mile runs in the fucking cross country for no damn reason and they're American football players? I, I saw that movie when I was already a sports scientist and I just people were like, Isn't this motivational? And I was like, I my head hurts. I wanna lie down. Not only are they missing sleep, <laughs> which as we've seen with recent research is a real bad idea. They're also training for an energy system they just don't need, and one which probably makes them the whole thing. Oh my god, I could I could go on that rant for a long time. Rocky's a, a terrible for training, but man, remember the Titans is really bad. I guess that's how they trained in the seventies, though. So there you go. Yeah. Do you have any, I guess, rules of I guess rules of thumb? If I say that, you only are allowed two because you only have two thumbs. I'm kind of getting back into we go from that. That phase three to phase four, it's like, okay, you mentioned if you can do a set of eight at pretty much an RM, then you are ready then for unrestricted training. Is that kind of that anecdotally your, your cutoff, that eight to 10 rep range where volume has been accumulated and, and now we can just kind of like start to increase intensity as a priority? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the rule of thumb there is, like, can you do multiple sets of 8 to 10 that are, that so formula translate to at least as much of a one rep max as you used to do, if not more? Because you'd be so good at reps by then, it should predict, over-predict your max. So, and, and the, here's the real big one. Can you do it asymptomatically related to your original injury at best or at worst with the restrictions that your medical professionals told you you should have? expect right like if you're just never going to get full range of motion back but you got back as much as you've gotten and there's no pain through the range of motion they allow you to do not ideally ideally there's just no pain at all uh, then you're good to go if you're you know doing a set of eight and then your knee starts to hurt and then you're like oh, i should drop the load but no i'm ready for fives next week you're not ready for fives next week 
you got to reevaluate the situation, reconsult with a medical professional, so on and so forth. If you're doing, if you can do like a workout of six heavy sets of eight, be completely asymptomatic, feel like an injury never happened, you're ready for high forces. Um, um, I'm a grappler as well as a bodybuilder or whatever. And so I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I've been hurt numerous times doing jiu-jitsu. This is probably not surprising. Um, the way I know that I'm cleared for what's called live rolling, which is full participation, trying to kill each other is if I can't even remember where my injury was. Like I actually pulled my sartorius muscle several months ago doing fucking lunges at a gym in Europe. Stupid. Um, and I didn't do particular position in jujitsu that irritates that muscle for several months. When I started doing it, it was based on several metrics. My leg curl strength had returned to normal. All of the strength regarding Sartorius was back to normal or above. But the big issue was I uh, didn't even remember which leg, like offhand, that I tore it in. I was like, was it the right or the leg? It was the left, right, right. Like if you have to remind yourself where the injury was, you're in a damn good place. But if every single movement you know damn well where the injury was, you're not ready to do maximum effort stuff. You're not ready to go on a soccer field and get hit in the face. You can tell yourself you are, but that's highly unlikely. What do you guys think? I don't know. I don't know. I think that's not a terrible rule of thumb. Makes sense to me. I mean, I like the that kind of logical approach to it. I also think like something you said earlier um, that I meant to bring up is that kind of long process going from that um, higher volume and kind of building into it again. Also, it helps decrease kinesophobia in my mind because you build confidence along the way. Like, oh, I can do this for 30 reps. Oh, I can do this for 20. Oh, I can't. And by the time you're ready to do high load, you're like, fuck yeah, I'm ready to do this. Let's do it. Kinesophobia. Can you define that really quick? Kinesophobia is just fear of movement. Uh, it's something that we see as a high correlation to a lot of uh, injuries as well as like whether they're ready to go back to sport or to play, things like ACL. For return to play, you want to see, do they have a high level of kinesiophobia? That's going to be a correlate to a potential re-injury. Oh, man. I mean, boy, that's that's a really great term. If I, think, I think we're basically saying the exact same thing. Like, uh, you know, if you can move in a way that you're basically carefree about it, yeah. you're probably ready to go. Unless you're just rock stupid, and then you might just be carefree all the time, even though your tendon's on a fucking string. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I think when you really can get your you feel your mojo, so to speak, and move around no problem, you're probably good to go. But if you're like, ooh, I don't want to step this way, it's like, really? In live competition, do you plan on your opponents not making you step in that way? Like, uh, the thing is, live competition and or heavy weights and training even, and definitely in powerlifting, weightlifting competition, but any kind of sport you compete against other people – you don't even have to put your body in a compromising position. The weight and or opponent will put it into a compromising position. So if you're guarding something, you are by definition not cleared for the highest level of competition. The highest level of competition, the, the kinds of athletes that win are almost in a psychological sense unguarded. You know, they're the ones that are ready to put it all on the line, so to speak. If you can't do that psychologically, you're not ready for full play. You might as well spend time fixing yourself overcompensating with even more adaptations so that once you are healed, you can come back and really, really do your best. And on that note, really quick rant, it is baffling to me when people come in with this presumption that injury healing should occur with some kind of insane rapidity, which is almost, they come up with just arbitrarily.
completely in their minds. They're like, so what do you think, Coach, four weeks? He, listen here, you dumb asshole. Where did you find that number? Did it just, just you like things that are four weeks long? Did you, did, you know, did a, like a crazy clown give you an ice cream bar and killed all your friends, but not you? And he said, four weeks, here you go. This will mean something in five years. And you're like, four weeks, great. What the hell is it that some people just seem to make, make shit up? Like, oh, I'm going to come back in two months. Like, what? have you ever looked at the injury healing literature for quad tendon rupture? No. What's the average time to full healing? Like, I don't know. Well, why the hell did you say four weeks or eight weeks or whatever? It's insane. Another thing is in that related note, you tore a structure that is critical to the operation of your body. Body, this is a major malfunction. How dare you assume that it's just going to go back to fucking normal after a couple of stretches and some fucking TRT injections or some shit. It's out of this world. When you really break your shit open, you got to take extra care and extra time to make sure you're super duper ready over the top. I much prefer people who are like, all right, in 10 months, I'm going to do another one rep max way more than people that are like, yeah, man, just whatever I'm feeling and I'm ready to go, babe. I'm ready to go right now. You know, if the doctors let me like, no, I don't fucking know. It's just crazy to me that people will just jack up their bodies in a trillion different ways. And the first thing that comes to their mind is how fast can I come back versus how completely can I heal? The, the problem is you're fucked up. The problem isn't that you can't go back to competing. The, the, the proximate problem is there are parts of you broken off, <laughs> okay? And they're going to break off again if you try doing dumb shit when they're just keep stuck together with, like, surgical glue or some shit. So the first concern should be how completely can I heal myself? If that's a concern, if you have an athlete that truly, I don't know, how many athletes have you guys had over the years that that's their number one goal when they get hurt and they come to you after? They're like, how do we get the most complete healing process going? Have you guys even ever been asked that? Usually it's well, rare. Get asked, yeah. How can I be yeah. uh, Adrian Peterson and come back faster than anybody in the history of the yeah, earth? Exactly. But guys, I, I need to go back to treating patients. So I need to go okay. preach the good word okay. that Dr. Mike has given us for the last hour. Um, but Mike, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you for yours as well. Likewise. Yeah. Later, yeah. I think that was a good, uh, a good parting message. Yeah. Mike, you're, where can people connect with you? Uh, RP strength on Instagram. Uh, is good at RP Dr. Mike RP D R M I K E on Instagram is also okay, but don't message me there because I don't check Instagram DMs because I don't respond to people like Dildo Lover 45. If you're not a human <laughs> being, I respond to avatars. Uh, if you want a human response, hit me up on Facebook where we're all actual people. Uh, Mike is on Facebook, it's a public account. Feel free to message me, comment on my wall post, troll me. RenaissancePeritization.com for some of the books that we've referenced. Um, and a real kind of like, if you want, like, a quick and dirty explanation of something, um, uh, Google my um, uh, YouTube, some of my podcast interviews with Steve Hall uh, and some of my other podcasts and stuff, um, and some of the videos I've done for Juggernaut Training Systems. If you want more than the quick and dirty, then uh, the books on Renaissance Periodization, um, I, I, can't, I can't recommend them highly enough because I wrote the shit, you know what I'm saying? Uh, they're okay, but they're, they basically... We, when we write books, we presume that you want to know a shitload of stuff and that you want to go back to basics uh, and then thread the knowledge up from there. So if you want to learn a ton of shit, um, I recommend those books. I recommend those books also, all the time, man. Sorry, thank you. Also, yeah. if you get hurt, 
don't message me, message Quinn. Is because or you message me, it's the same thing. Because I'll just be like, here is Quinn. <laughs> just link right back in. That's all I do. You're well. You're welcome. By the way, so to speak, I probably send you a trillion annoying questions per week. No man, I appreciate it. It's great. I I would say your Facebook is basically a. If people don't know, your Facebook is basically a blog. Your posts are very in depth, and so. Yeah, that's the easiest way to just get free information. I don't think people understand how valuable that info is and how accessible it is. So the webinar is going to be October 4th. Ah, yeah. Webinar is October 4th on this very topic and and much more in depth. Again, Dr. Mike, thank you so much for being on. Michael Ray, thanks for co-hosting as always. And we'll see you guys next time. Peace. Yeah. Thanks, Mike.